I don't know that we've had a more special month for the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast than the month just ending, March 2021. The market has been, well, not the most fun thing to watch, and we're going to talk a bit about that this week. But we started the month closing out two five-stock samplers, five stocks to feed the next bear, and five stocks the world needs right now. From stocks we picked years ago, we listened again, and more importantly, we learned. Those two samplers retired straight to the RBI Hall of Fame with gains of 120% and 347% respectively. In fact, five stocks the world needs right now goes directly to the head of the class as the greatest sampler of all time. But then also, a week later, two fools came in and told their stories. Emily Flippin and Rick Munares shared the stock graphs of their lives in a format we will be permanently adopting in Telling Their Stories, Episode 1. And then 300. If you were listening two weeks ago, you know what I'm saying. If you weren't, well, welcome to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. You may be a new listener. You should just know that this week's podcast, the one you're hearing right now, is the 302nd consecutive new and fresh weekly podcast since we launched in July of 2015. Cal Ripken and all that, no repeats. Two weeks ago, therefore, was number 300. And I put some extra oomph into that one that I hope was worthy of the occasion. And then last week, the market cap game show with an all new format. And now, as we've done for many, many moons, it's the last Wednesday of the month. So we are popping open your mailbag to see and speak to you, my dear and oh so foolish listeners. The March 2021 mailbag only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. And welcome back to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. I am delighted to be joined by a number of guest stars this particular week. It is, of course, your mailbag. And I'm looking over the list. I think we're going to get eight or so items this, this week. Anytime I have that many, I like to bring along a friend or two, Sir Maria Gallagher and Carl Teal and Rick Munares will be joining me later in the show. I'd like to start each of our mailbag typically speaking to a few hot takes from Twitter. Now, we got a lot of hot takes because it was a hot month, as I mentioned, up at the top for this podcast. So not nearly enough time to honor all the effort out there. Thank you very much. I'll just speak to two real quick. First of all, my longtime friend, Jason Newman at JNU4. Special thanks and congrats to at David G. Fool at R. Engdahl and the at RBI Podcast Family on an incredible accomplishment. The body of work that you've created for the world over 300 straight weeks has been an exercise in compounding insight and timeless enjoyment. Forever grateful. Fool on. Jason closes. I tell new investors, friends, and family all the time that if you want to learn and don't want to read, go back to episode one of at RBI Podcast and start there. Well, thank you very much, Jason. And in particular, thank you for thanking not just me, but of course, Rick and Yes, the entire Rule Breaker Investing podcast family. So many people have collaborated to make this podcast happen over 300 plus weeks and counting. And certainly Rick Engdahl, my longtime producer from day one, deserves a huge amount of credit, but also my many guests, my many fellow fools. And that includes all of you. Anybody who's ever taken the time to write in to the podcast, rbi at fool.com is the email address. Yeah, I've read it. I've read pretty much all of them. And while I can never feature everything that we get on a given mailbag, I want you to know I really appreciate it. So it takes a village. 
And one other tweet, this one from Jason Moore at Jiminy Jillikers. I'm not going to spell that, Jason, but I think I featured you a while ago because you were the fellow who discovered this podcast only pretty recently, and you literally started at podcast one, and you've been listening your way 30 hours a week, I think you said last month or two months ago. And this is what you said on Twitter this month. You said, oh, no, it finally happened. I finished the Ad RBI podcast backdated library. Thankfully, The Motley Fool has other shows to fill out the week. If you don't listen to this podcast, I would highly recommend it. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, That means a lot coming from you. And yeah, I do want to highlight that The Motley Fool has uh, several other wonderful podcasts. A podcast like Market Foolery happens each day of the market week. We have recent podcasts like our Million Acres podcast. And of course, we have longstanding podcasts like Motley Fool Answers, Motley Fool Industry Focus, and the original Motley Fool Money, which isn't just a podcast. It's been on various radio stations around the country for years now. So there is a lot of effort, and that doesn't even include Motley Fool Live, where so many of us make contributions in a given month. That is, of course, the TV channel, that's how I think of it, that runs on our website, and it's for members only. So if you're a Motley Fool member, I hope you've discovered live.fool.com. And if you haven't yet, it's one of my favorite developments of the last year in the investment world writ large. I think it's an amazing contribution. Very proud of it. And I would highly recommend you join as a Motley Fool member so you can enjoy and learn from Motley Fool Live every day if you like. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get started. Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag Item Number One. This one comes from my new friend. And yes, sure, you are my new friend, Adam Nelson. Hi, David. I sincerely thank you for the recognition of my suggestion to improve the market cap game show. I always appreciate your willingness to give credit to others. You invented this fun and educational game. I simply suggested a minor tweak, yet when I see my name in the show notes and hear it over the airwaves, I can't help but smile. Thanks for making my week and fulfilling your mission to make the world a happier place. Well, let me pause right there and say, Adam, it's my pleasure to do so. So much of what we do here at The Motley Fool is a collaboration between all of us, and I include listeners of podcasts, members of The Fool, etc. So you made a wonderful suggestion that I truly enjoyed, and so many of the Twitter hot takes I did not read this week were people who had enjoyed the improvement we made to the game. Again, for anybody who is unaware that we tweaked the Market Cap Game Show, please listen to last week's podcast, play along, and see if you can beat Rick and Tim and their score of five. After all, the Market Cap Game Show was designed not for my studio contestants, but for you listening at home so you can play along, listen, learn, and have fun. And Adam Nelson, you made it more fun and smarter for a lot of us. Now, you go on to say, I also enjoyed your new addition to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. The stock stories were enjoyable and thought-provoking. I believe you're referring here to telling their stories with Emily Flippin and Rick Munares. Adam, you go on to say, after I spent a little time writing my own story and then thought about sharing it, I had a realization. It came from something that you say about stocks all the time and reiterated again in a recent episode. It's not about where you have been, but where you are going in the future that really matters. And to that point, Adam concludes, I hope that every single one of your listeners can see their current high value and future potential to hit new 52-week highs each and every year going forward. Thanks again, Adam Nelson. Well, that's really well said. You know, that concept of graphing your life as a stock graph, for all of those old hands here who have loved the markets and or studied them for one or more years, we have a lot of new investors and many longtime investors. We're used to looking at stock graphs and seeing 
the line that tells us the story of how that stock has done. And we always hope it starts somewhere in the lower left and goes to the upper right. Well, we can also do the same thing with our lives and ask ourselves, if you were to graph the stock of your life, what would it look like? And just like the real market, there are some downtimes. There's some bear markets in our lives too. So that opportunity to tell your story through the guise of a stock graph, I think was really fun. And I'm glad that you enjoyed that. And you're not the only one, Adam, who started doing that for himself. I'll be sharing a little bit more later. I do want to mention your postscript. You said, I recently finished reading Shirzad Shamin's book, Positive Intelligence. And again, I owe my thanks to you and your podcast for impacting me in a positive way with that recommendation. And, you know, I can't recommend Shirzad's work enough. Anybody who's hearing that title for the first time, Positive Intelligence, it's a wonderful book. Now, kind of a Cliff Notes version of that book for those who are not as oriented to read would be my Rule Breaker Investing podcast that featured Shirzad Shamin last year. Just Google Rule Breaker Investing and Positive Intelligence, and you're going to find it. And I hope it'll improve your life in the same way it's improved Adam's and improved mine. All right, that's mailbag item number one. Let's get back to the subject of investing with mailbag item number two. This one comes from Oscar Navarez. I see it's Dr. Oscar Navarez. Thank you for writing in, Oscar. He says, hey, David, my name is Oscar Navarez. I'm a 33-year-old dermatologist from Puerto Rico. I started investing immediately upon graduation from residency in 2018 and quickly ran into the Motley Fool. On March 11th, 2020, that would be about a year ago, my portfolio, which held about 60% of my liquidity at the time with no margin, Oscar inserts, was down massively, like everyone's. And I began to panic as a relatively new investor. And then your episode, which I recently re-listened to about, and this is the title of it, the quote, thoughts on our world in 10 and a half chapters, end quote, came out. I was listening on my way back from work, suffering from a slight panic attack. When I heard you speak and the way you were so cool about everything, I would say was instrumental in saving me from myself. And I've never panicked again. So I just wanted to share the story. I was remembering it now about a year after it happened, says Oscar. Keep up the great work. Your advice is extremely good, particularly good for young, inexperienced investors who are being taken to the dark side of investing, aka gambling. Cheers, Oscar Navarez. Well, Oscar, thank you for writing in from Puerto Rico. I always love hearing from my international listeners. And I I wanted to share that one because a lot of people are feeling some panic right around now. I've seen a number of fools, both on Twitter and on our discussion boards. These might be especially newer investors seeing their stocks are down 25% or so from where they were at the start of the year. And a lot of the ritzy winners from 2020, stocks that ran up three times in value sometimes have given back a quarter of that. Now, I think if you take the view I take, which is to start around, I don't know, three years ago or five years ago and see how you're doing over the last three years, you'll realize it's been a pretty spectacular three or five years, especially if you've been a rule breaker investor. And my biggest hope for you is that you don't lock in too hard on how you did last month or how you did last year. I totally sympathize with anybody who may just have started investing, let's say on January 1st of this year, and it feels like you're 20% down as you started, and that doesn't feel good at all. But I sure do hope that you've been listening to me and The Motley Fool, not just for days or months, but maybe years now, and you realize it's not about Q1 2021, just like it wasn't about Q4 of 2020 or Q1, it was pretty dramatic of 2020, 
when Oscar was listening to my thoughts on the world in 10 and a half chapters, which in particular was reflecting on COVID just as it was hitting in the worst way, especially for our mentalities as we realized the world was shutting down and everything was changing. And that's why I did those thoughts on our world in 10 and a half chapters. And I might go back and listen to that at some point myself because I'm curious what I was saying watching the numbers skyrocket for infections and contagion uh, in a world that was still kind of pre-Zoom in many ways. But it's comforting to know in conclusion that a year later, while the stock market has had its ups and its downs, that we really have adapted pretty well as humans to trying to make the best of this. Some countries better than others, some individuals better than others, and of course, much and many have been lost as well. So we have to reflect on all of those things as we get ready for April of 2021, the second quarter, whatever the market holds for us. But I really do hope we'll remember it's about the future, not the very recent past, which has been a a weaker market, or the near past, which actually has been a pretty great market. I hope we'll realize it's about being in the market. Time in the market, as the old saw goes, not timing the market. And so if you're listening to me and if you're following along with so many fools around the world following the advice of our company, you know that it's about being regular, about saving every two weeks a portion of your salary and adding that into the market and not worrying in the near term about whether the market seems high or low. And Oscar, for you to say in conclusion that you have never panicked again, that brings a big smile to my foolish face. So thank you, Oscar Navarez, for writing in. All right. Now, I'm about to go to mailbag item number three, but up, I see my friend Maria Gallagher. Maria, great to have you here on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You bet. I really enjoyed your appearance uh, this is Tuesday, of course, that we're recording. We're doing this Tuesday afternoon, March 30th. But I really enjoyed you on Motley Fool Live this morning on the morning show. Uh, a delight to see you again, Maria. I, I don't think I've seen you in person for maybe more than a year now, but you've been doing a lot of the Motley Fool. And I know you're especially focused these days on the discovery services. But you had a recent personal achievement that I think we should lead off with before we go to mailbag item number three. Absolutely. So this week, I was telling David that I have I have run three miles without stopping. I would like to shout out the Peloton app for helping me with that. And uh, it's been a real big win for me this this quarantine. That is really great. Now, Maria, I picture you as having within the last months or within the last year or so moving back up to the New York City area. Uh, is that where you did your three mile run? Yes, I'm very fortunate that I live in New York, but I live near many parks. So I get to run in parks, which makes it very nice. Excellent. Well, you've graciously consented to hang out with me for 15 minutes or so. So let's go through a few mailbag items together. One or two of them I definitely have you specifically in mind for, but this next one, mailbag item number three, I just think is delightful. So let's let's reflect together on it after I finish this wonderful read from Michael Rowland, writing in from Reno, Nevada. Michael writes, Hello, David. I enjoyed your new series, Telling Their Stories. I wanted to let you know it sparked some soul-searching in this listener. I was intrigued by the concept of the stock chart of your life, but what really got me thinking was the three moments that shaped your wonderful guests as investors. Thinking about my three defining moments, I realized I'd never looked at it quite that way, and it took more brain power than expected. Well, the first moment was not hard to identify. At 29 years old, Michael writes, my first foray into the market was poorly timed. I opened a brokerage account in October of 2007. 
and I wish that told you everything you needed to know. Timing, however, was not my only issue. I bought high and sold low. I was easily scared out of positions. When I discovered options, I found that you can understand the mechanics of something very well and yet not really understand anything, Michael writes. My first defining moment was a little over a year later when I threw my hands up and said to myself, this is for the birds. Well, my second defining moment was much harder to suss out. In 2014, seemingly out of nowhere, I got the urge to start investing again. I resolved to take it slow and learn something along the way. I read everything I could get my hands on. One or two books even had a couple of guys wearing silly hats on the cover. I knew my, quotes, moment had to have something to do with this investing restart, but no particular snapshot of time seemed to have the gravity. And then I remembered something that had happened about two years earlier. My wife and I were driving through Sacramento, and we stopped at a McDonald's, likely to satisfy her craving for their ice cream cones. While standing in line, I noticed an older couple off to the side. They were probably in their early to mid-60s. I hesitate to say that they looked homeless, but the best word I can come up with to describe them is tired. They looked tired. They were huddled together with a few dollar bills and coins in their hands, trying to figure out if they had the money to get what they wanted. I considered approaching them and offering help, Michael writes, but there were a few other people nearby. I didn't know how such an offer would be received, and I didn't want to embarrass them. So I did nothing. A decision I sometimes ponder. We see people in need quite often, but for some reason, this stuck with me. Driving away, I resolved that my wife and I were not going to be the retirement age couple at McDonald's trying to figure out if we had enough money to eat. This is perhaps a selfish takeaway from an awful situation, but an honest one. After the exercise sparked by your podcast, I now believe this moment had much to do with the life-changing decision two years later to start investing the right way. While my first two moments are less than uplifting, I promise it gets better. How could it not? Yet the third moment was hardest of all to determine. Lately, I've had the distinct feeling that everything is coming together, like I'm really getting to know myself as an investor, but what moment to use? My portfolio value has recently hit a nice round number and surpassed it nicely. I'm beating the market by an amount that seems to grow by the month. I'm working on some things that you can appreciate, like letting my winners win and investing in growing companies for the long term. Things are moving along nicely, but what moment? Well, Michael concludes, then it hit me. There is no third defining moment. Not yet. I'm still relatively early in my wealth building journey. My third moment is a moment in the making. I'm working toward it every day. And while bumps in the road are to be expected, it's shaping up to be a very positive one. I'm pleased to have you and everyone at the Fool Podcasts involved in this journey. The practical knowledge and amazing companies discussed are valuable, but the opportunity to view myself in a unique and unexpected way is priceless. For that, I thank you. Michael Rowland, Reno, Nevada. Wow, what a pleasure that was to share. Maria, what came to mind as you as you heard Michael's story? 
I'm really impressed with just how self-aware he is and how well he was able to look back at his journey. And I really like the idea that his third moment's in the making. I would think a lot of our moments are in the making and we're looking forward for those moments and we're hoping that they'll be more positive moving forward. But obviously those more negative moments have to be a part of our investing journey. And I also think it's really uh, important that he highlighted not only his journey with investing, but his journey with money and his journey with saving and where he wants his life to be in terms of saving. And I think that that's also a really important thing to think about in terms of where where you're investing, where you're saving, what your priorities are moving forward. All of that being really self-aware within your monetary goals is, I think, an invaluable strategy and skill to have. And it sounds like he has it. So I think that was a really great story. And I'm really happy I got to hear it. Well, thank you, Maria. And I'm, I really appreciate your reflections there. And yes, on the positivity. And I think back to our first mailbag item, there was Adam Nelson saying, I hope that every single one of your listeners can see their current high value and future potential to hit new 52-week highs each and every year going forward. And I really think it's it's particularly valuable when the market has sold off as it has. Some of us have watched some of our stocks lose 25% or more of their value here in the first quarter of 2021. And so a lot of it does come down to the not just the time frame that you have in mind, like how much should a quarter count or even a year, not just the time frame, Maria, but also your attitude toward where things are going. And I think the more that we fill our portfolios with companies that strike us as shaping a better world, world beaters and world shapers, the the better and happier we're going to be. And I think the more reason for positivity. So I know in my 300th podcast a couple of weeks ago, I celebrated Ted Lasso. And part of the reason I did is because that's the right mentality to take to life. Have you watched any of Ted Lasso, the show, Maria? It's very high on my list. I've been recommended it so many times. Excellent. Well, indeed, it has won its fair share of awards here in 2021. And uh, I I think I've already spoken to it. So I don't think I'm going to do a future podcast about how to invest like Ted Lasso. But I think a lot of our fellow fools are getting it. And thank you for speaking to that, Maria. Let's go to mailbag item number four. This one comes from Lewis. Lewis writes, Hello, David. I hope this email finds you well. First, Just want to say thank you for all that you do by enlightening the world with The Motley Fool. What an incredible company you've built. And I really do agree with you. I know there's a lot of home team thinking here. I want to make it clear. It's my younger brother, Tom Gardner, who's our CEO, who's really the mind and the effort behind this company. And I do think it's becoming an incredible company. It's my pleasure to participate and be on the boat as well as I have been for 27 years and counting. Lewis goes on, Maria, he says, I have two questions for the mailbag that I'm hoping you might be able to address on the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Now, quick background first, I am a young investor. Full disclosure, Maria, I think of you as a younger investor. That's why I wanted to have you on here to react to Lewis. He goes on to say, I just started building my portfolio in late 2020. I began looking for the best resources and investing philosophies to follow. And as I read many articles and opinions of various people, I noticed that I kept hearing so many great things about The Motley Fool. So I began listening to many of the Fool podcasts. I must say, within a matter of months, I was completely enthralled with the amount of knowledge that I was gaining in the world of investing. I come from an educational background, Lewis writes, in natural science. So I didn't spend much time thinking about finance and I never would have predicted that I would actually enjoy learning these things. So thank you. Here comes his first question. Now, my first question is about picking stocks. Simply put, 
Why shouldn't novice investors just clone the portfolio of a professional investor to gain the best possible return? For example, if I wanted a portfolio which would give me the best disruptive innovation stocks over decades, couldn't I just Google Kathy Wood stock picks and blindly purchase those companies? Or if I wanted a deep value, reliable stock portfolio, couldn't I just look up Warren Buffett portfolio and blindly purchase those companies? My thinking is no matter how much independent research I might perform, I couldn't possibly have more knowledge in picking stocks than an experienced professional investor has. So there's no reason that I would have a greater probability for a market beating return. Lewis concludes this point with, while I understand it may be irresponsible to choose stocks that way, I don't choose mine that way, he does admit. Do you consider the logic reasonable? Do you see any merit to portfolio cloning as a style of investing? Okay. So first of all, Lewis, it seems like we're in the same boat. I studied psychology undergrad. And I think when I started getting interested and invested, I was the most surprised person for how interested in investing I was. And I think that to your first question, I think that looking at investors you admire for ideas is always a good idea. I'll look at ETFs and say, oh, I've never heard of that company. Let me look into it on my own. I think my biggest concern with that kind of style would be you have to understand the different uh, capabilities that those co- that those innovation funds and those big ETFs have. So if they have $50 billion worth of assets... Those will those movements will be affected differently than if you have your own smaller portfolio. So those impacts will disproportionately hit you if you have a smaller portfolio, and you might not be able to buy every single company within that portfolio. So that would be the danger. Is I would be a little bit nervous about that cloning aspect. But I do think that the logic is there of saying I really admire and respect these people. Let me go into their portfolios. What do they own? I respect them. I trust them. Let me see what their ideas are. And then I would encourage you to do a little bit of your own research. Maybe if you're really passionate about an ETF, buy into the ETF. You don't have to just clone it in your own portfolio. Just own the ETF yourself. And then you can be a part of that $50 billion under management or whatever that number might be. But I do think um, I love to look at ETFs and say, wow, I've never heard of that company. Let Let me go do a little bit of a deeper dive on my own and understand what that company is. Thank you, Maria. And you know, Lewis's second question is going to be about holding stocks, which we'll go to in a sec. All I want to do is just add in a point about learning. So I love that Maria was not a, a business or finance major, uh, and nor was I. And doesn't sound like Lewis was either, but I think each of us is a learner. And I think the right approach to take to life is that it's a little bit of a cliche these days, but whole life learning, lifelong learning, there's such an important mega trend and tailwind behind continuing to learn as adults and the businesses that will teach us and help us to learn. Because turns out when you graduated and got your final degree, wherever that was, that was just the start of the rest of your life of learning. Certainly was not the end. Sometimes people think they've got their degree. Now it's time to do stuff and no longer learn. So in that spirit, then I would simply add, Lewis, that you're not going to learn nearly as much if you're just buying somebody else's list And you said blindly, which I can smile at and appreciate that you included that. Blindly buying somebody else's list of stocks, you may or may not do well. And I would question whether you can even continue to mimic what they're doing. You may not be the first to hear when they sell, for example. Uh, But really, what you're giving away is that opportunity to learn. And so the more that you make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future and people it with companies 
whose missions you understand and believe in and you want to follow, you're going to learn so much more than if you're just following a hot picks list. But I also want to underline what Maria said about, hey, you can just buy an ETF if you want. I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of Motley Fool members aren't content with just mailing it in with what I've called sometimes the gentleman C of investing, the index fund. I think we've proven you can do a lot better. And I know this, you're going to be smarter, happier, and I think richer as well if you take the time to make the effort. And I love that you've had touched off in your life, Lewis, a real interest in this subject that neither you nor Maria nor perhaps even I thought that we would have until we started getting more into it and realized its importance. All right. Well, let's go to the second part of this question. Maria Lewis writes, what strategies do you employ when your stock picks are not doing well, but nothing's changed with the underlying business or thesis? He says, I'm in my 20s, so I have a very long-term mindset, but I feel that I began investing at the wrong time. Sounds like Lewis may have started just a few months ago, and uh, it hasn't been a pretty last few months. All right, returning to text here, some are even calling it a bubble. For example, I bought Tesla at 800, and it's well below 650 now. I'm seeing that nearly all of my, his phrase, tech-heavy stock picks are well below the value where I first bought them in December 2020. It becomes really tempting to sell and switch to a new stock. Since you are known as a great long-term multi-bagger investor, I was wondering, how are you able to keep holding positions for so long even when things are down? Do you double down when the price is low? Do you partially sell some and look to wait for the right time to buy the shares back? Or do you do nothing? Lewis concludes, I look forward to hearing some of your wisdom. Best regards. Maria? So I think the really important thing that he highlighted in his second point is that nothing had under had changed with the underlying business fundamentals. And I think that's something really important to know. So if a company has had a terrible quarter or management changed guidance or management made a really big acquisition people don't like, that is a different... that There is a reasoning behind a difference in price. But if it is just the stock market is going down and it feels indiscriminate, I think a lot of times we try and see that as opportunity and say, okay, well... If I liked it $200 more expensive, I like it at this price as well. And then just two other quick things. The first is I would look at the valuation of a company. So understand what the expectations are baked into that stock price. So Mm. where do investors see this company going forward? So you are aware when you buy into some of these companies, say, well, it's priced at 50 times sales. I know that that means investors are expecting a long trajectory of growth for this company for a really long period of time. So understanding those underlying valuations will maybe help you understand a little bit why the company is going down and what you think that will look like in the future. And then my last quick point is I think what's always helpful for me is this idea of zooming out. So in some of my classes I took during the investor development program at The Motley Fool, Jim Mueller, who is a a fool here, he did a class and he showed some companies that were down 40% and said, would you sell at this point? And then he zoomed out and it was Netflix. And he just said, you always want to zoom out in your mind and say, where is the company now? And where do I think the company is going to be in 10 years? What's my vision of the world? Where where will that company fit in that vision of the world? And where do you see this company moving forward? And that, to me, is a really helpful way of thinking through understanding the valuation, understanding the underlying business, having a thesis for that, and then saying, where do I think it's going to be in the future? And making making your judgments based on that. Wow. Thank you, Maria. That was so eloquent. And I find... Almost no need to add anything. 
I guess I'll just say in parting to Lewis and to everybody that to hold has always struck me as so much easier than to sell and have to rebuy. And it always amazes me when people are amazed that we would hold or that I would hold because it feels like I'm doing nothing, which really is the right thing to do in so many cases. And it's so much easier. All right, let's move on to mailbag item number six. Maria, will you stay with me one more? Always. Awesome. All right, here we go. This is from Sandra. Hi, David. I'm a relatively new listener to the Rule Breakers podcast. I found it during one of my socially distanced walks during the initial shutdown in the spring of 2020, and I was hooked immediately. I appreciated your generosity in selecting five stock samplers and reporting on the results with complete transparency to your audience. I also love your view of investing to, quotes, support the world you'd like to see. It's such a great message to promote, and it's refreshing to hear. I've personally been investing, Sandra writes, since I was 10 years old. I just turned 50, and a lot of your ideas and guidelines make great sense to me and align well with my investing philosophy too. Now, after listening for most of the summer, I convinced my partner, Sandra writes, also a David, shout out to the Daves everywhere, that we should join Stock Advisor, Rule Breakers, and become fools ourselves. I found the recommendations and the tools on fool.com very useful. I consult it regularly for new ideas and areas to invest. And as a side note, I've also used several of the short videos and Fool School to educate my children on how to invest and how also to create a long-term philosophy around investing. They're now making regular small contributions, boy, do I love reading this, of their own money from part-time jobs into their investing accounts and selecting things they personally have an interest in, like Disney or electric cars, renewable energy, making choices based on the market trends that their Gen Z generation is causing in the marketplace and holding those companies for the long term. Very exciting and gratifying to me, Sandra writes. And now, on to my question. Recently, one of the recommended full stocks that I own entered the penalty box. My question is this, has a stock ever become a multi-bagger or gone on to significantly beat the market after spending time in the full penalty box? Or is it more likely that once in the penalty box, even if it exits again, it's likely maybe just a limp along into the future to only underwhelming or mediocre returns. Thanks for putting on the podcast, introducing me to the full overse signed Sandra. Okay, I want to say one thing up front to this, Maria, and then I have a question for you. What I want to say up front, Sandra, is that is a delightful story to read and to share. I love how you you got into it by walking and then you shared it with your partner and then you've got your kids going and you all are members and look how well you're doing. And I just feel like you're doing everything right. So thank you very much for that. And as to your question about the penalty box, let me briefly explain. And anybody who's a stock advisor or Rule Breakers member will know this. We have a penalty box in those services where we will put stocks that are present recommendations. That is, we actively like them and we tend to hold these active recommendations years and years. But something has changed or we have questions. Maybe there was a change in management or maybe the company did something crazy that we don't agree with and we'll put that stock in the penalty box. Now, a lot of people who are hockey fans and many people are not will recognize the penalty box as sort of a place that you've done something wrong out there on the ice and you have to sit in the penalty box for a little while and cool off. And that's the way we think about these stocks. We don't want active members to actively buy those stocks, but we're not selling them. We're saying, to the penalty box with you while we analyze things and think about it a little bit more. So 
At the root of it, Sandra's question before I ask my question of Maria, Sandra's question is, have we ever had a stock that came out of a penalty box and became a huge winner? And I'm going to say right up front, typically not. I would say a lot of the time, there are companies that might have had some change at best neutral in what they're doing. And sometimes it's hard to pull back out of that. And so I would say often we'll go on to sell stocks that might have been in the penalty box, but sometimes they do come back out. A minority of them go on to greatness. And I do want to cite one, my friend Toby Bordelon, who was on this podcast the first week of the month when we reviewed some five-stock samplers. Toby pointed out Boston Beer, ticker symbol SAM, as a great example of a stock that we put in the penalty box in 2017. In fact, history will show it was May 2nd of 2017. It was at 141. We put it in the box. We unboxed it three months later at 148. So it was up a little bit. But more recently, it's up around 1,188. So we're talking about a huge winner. Uh, Boston Beer, ticker symbol Sam, of course, Sam Adams, as an example of a company that came out. So yeah, that can happen sometimes. But I think more important, and a question I wanted to ask you, Maria, having done innumerable mailbags for this podcast, it feels like most of the time it's guys writing in. And so I especially appreciate it when I get messages for this podcast from regular listeners who are not guys, who, in the case of Sandra is a woman, and I always want all of the women and all then all fools everywhere to be investing. And I'm just curious, Maria, I would even say that applicants to become investment analysts at the Motleyville skew male, I think our numbers would show. So it always makes it more special, just like I champion female CEOs, because I'm like, it was hard to get to be a CEO of a public company. And probably as a woman, it was even harder. So those are usually special people. This is just sort of a male-female question, Maria. I guess my big picture question is, why do guys tend to write in more on this podcast? The first thing is traditionally men have more money than women um, due to the pay gap and due to the way finances have been structured throughout history. Generally, the the breadwinner of a household would be a man. And this is speaking very generally with history Understood. and statistics. Throughout time. And so I think that is just our baseline is that money has always been seen as a man's issue and something, you know, I'll have the man of the house take care of. And as more women are getting more financial independence and as more women are getting interested in uh, planning for retirement and getting more interested in investing, I obviously am very excited about that. And I am one of them. Uh, And so I think that that's the first barrier. And then the second barrier is the way that investing is structured is it's a very competitive mindset. As you're saying, I want to beat the market. Mm -hmm. And when you look at female investors, a lot of times the goal isn't always to beat the market. The goal might be, I want to save for retirement. I want to send my kids to college. And the mindset of the female investors is quite different than the mindset of male investors. So I think that's also a kind of a barrier is if you see it as this intense competition. And if you're a woman who's coming into money a little bit later, if you've recently got divorced or you're trying to get a hold of your finances later in life, you might feel like you're late to the party and everyone else already has all this information and it's such a competitive spirit. It Mm. feels hard to get involved at that point in your lifetime. So there's this great book I would like to recommend called Warren Buffett Invest Like a Girl and Why You Should Too by Luann Lofton. And it goes through a lot of the gender dynamics with money, with saving, with the way investing is presented. And I think it's a really great way to understand how investing for the long term and investing in the vision of the world you want to see is something that 
really resonates, I think, with a lot of female investors. We're seeing more interest in environmental, social, and governance investing and more sustainable investing and more investing in terms of saving for retirement and less of that intensity in competition within investing. And so I think all of those trends of more financial independence combined with more interest in investing are really exciting trends that should hopefully keep uh, being propelled further and further. But I think that that's probably why you get more mailbag questions from guys is I think more guys are competitive, more guys are in the market, and hopefully we'll get more and more, more ladies involved as well. Well, thank you very much for that, Maria. I agree with those things. You know, I think about, in particular, where have women traditionally, this is looking backwards, not really that forward, but where have women appeared in the investment world? I think about investment clubs and how many all-female investment clubs there have been. And that just reminds me of the benefits of pooling our resources, not thinking you're on your own and you need to be a lone wolf out there and compete against the world, which is maybe more of a masculine reflection, as you were saying, about how you know guys tend to think about it. But wow, the benefits of pooling our resources, whether it's an investment club with men, women, or all of the above, I think is a really capital F foolish thing. And in a lot of ways, since Tom and I founded this on AOL back in the day with forums, I just... I know the benefits of asking questions and helping answer questions. And just the very fact that you were with me this week on the mailbag answering a variety of different questions reminds us of how much we can learn from each other and why I'm grateful that you're part of our team here at The Motley Fool. Maria, thank you for all of that. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be a part of the team. All right. Well, on to Rule Breaker mailbag item number six. And I see my friend Carl Teal now. Back in the day, we used to do this in studio. So people like Maria would come through and I'd see them physically at Full HQ in our studios and they'd bop in for a point or more for a mailbag item and then, and then leave. But now it's all about Zoom and all about who just popped up on my screen. And so I see my friend, longtime analyst, Carl Teal. Carl, you helped us review some samplers earlier this month. It's great to have you back on Rule Breaker Investing. It's good to be here. Now, Carl, I I asked Maria to share something recently about her life as an introduction earlier. She mentioned she has just run three miles continuously without stopping for perhaps the first time in a, we'll just say a long time. Carl, do you have anything you'd like to talk about as regards specifically running? Yeah, I I heard that. So I I have to reflect that I think a little over 10 years ago, I ran a a half marathon. Wow. Because I was was quite into running at that time. And I was thinking I was maybe even going to go for a full marathon. And then that was the problem with goals. I had set this goal of running a half marathon. And then once I did it, uh, without meaning to, I stopped running shortly thereafter. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sure I'd make it a mile now. Ah, well, you know, it's all about what comes next, Carl, not what was. So, Carl, there's a chance. I mean, it doesn't have to be about running anyway. Just good health and self-awareness around your health, I know, is going to be part of your future. Absolutely. All right. Let's go into mailbag item number six. Hi, I'm a longtime listener in Sweden, writes Frederick Bertelsson. I hope I did a decent job not butchering your last name, Frederick. But perhaps you go on disappointingly actually not a Rule Breaker member any longer. No, please don't. Don't press the delete button just yet with a smiley emoji. Frederick writes, We just switched the Rule Breaker membership and our Rule Breaker portfolio responsibility within the family. It is now my wife, Maria, who is the chief fool of the family. Loving this. It's great. I can even get away with calling her chief fool without ending up on the sofa. Her personality simply fits much better for the volatility expected from rule breakers 
and that type of investing. She eagerly looks forward to all of your buy recommendations and best buys now, many of which she acts on since we are still in the portfolio build-up phase. I think we've taken up enough of your time, Rhea, so I think I should say goodbye to you, but I wanted you to be able to leave on that note because I kind of love that. I love her name. <laughs> I think uh, I'm not surprised that one of the happy Scandies is the one who is <laughs> a, an example of a gender reversal within within investing, and I'm excited to see it, and I hope we have more more chief fool Marias in the future. Love it, and thank you very much, Maria Gallagher, for being with us this week. Thanks so much for having me. All right. And then there's a shift here, Carl, in Frederick's focus. And this is why I wanted to have you on for this moment. Frederick goes on to say, anyway, now for the topic. We came across a Canadian company called Abcelera or Abcelera Biologics that recently IPO'd. We tried to research it on fool.com and other places on our own, but failed. So I was thinking that it looks like a possible candidate for a rule breaker analysis with what seems to be a novel approach in biotech and a leadership that has a lot of skin in the game. They also attracted, speaking of Teals, they also attracted Peter Teal to the board with a smaller stake in the company. Frederick Wright, sounds interesting. Hope that you might have a look at it in case you think Absolera might be worth a piece of rule breakers capital. Thanks and stay safe. With kind regards, Frederick, and we'll also say Maria. And it's great to have Frederick and Maria in the fold here. Well, Carl, a number of things going on. Since you are one of my favorite biotech analysts, I absolutely wanted to have you on. Now, I'm pretty sure you hadn't necessarily heard of this company as of yesterday, but when I dropped you a note earlier today, you said you'd look into it a little bit. We have to speak about that, number one. But are you any relation to Peter Thiel? Because you both spell your last name the same way. I'm sure we are in some distant way, aren't we all? <laughs> and I hope that when he goes to redo his will, he remembers that. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not aware that we are of any that we are related in any way. Very well said. Well, so Carl, let's talk briefly about biotech here. Now, to the extent you may have dug up anything on Absolera, I think it'd be nice to an- answer that question for Frederick, but. For most of us, we don't even know anything about this company. So I hope part of what you could speak to more generally is what you do when you hear about a new stock, maybe a biotech stock, how you start to learn about it. A couple of the things you might look at or suggest for all of us. Yeah. What's really interesting, I'm going to make up this number, but I'll just say, if you go look at the last two years of IPOs, I'm going to say 65% of them are healthcare biotech companies. Wow. I had no idea that. I I think of all of them as SPACs and just doing anything they want these days, but I'm sure you're right. Yeah. More that recently, but (laughs) it's... it's it's an amazing number that come out, and I feel mm. bad because there's a lot of these like, oh, I should. So when you said that, it's like, yeah, this is just one more thing in my inbox. I really should have looked at some of these companies more. They only came public, um, I think, in December of uh, 2020. So they've okay. a pretty, pretty recent IPO. Um, actually a super cool company. I really enjoyed looking into it. Mm. It's really interesting. I think, you know... I kind of like to go technology first on these things, and and I, I think it's a little hard to resist doing the, um, you know, how is it like, you know, what's it like? It's like this, it's like that, you know, kind of compare it to stuff I know and then figure out how it's different, or at least that's how I approach this company. Because what they do is um, antibody discovery and antibody engineering, and um, 
that's that's not unique. And in fact, the company that most comes to mind being similar to that would be Anaptis Bio, which is going to get David to hang up on me probably. If I, <laughs> <laughs> not, it's not, not been so- one of our best rule breaker performers. I'm the one who picked it though, Carl. So, um. <laughs> well, that's kind of you to take the take the blame. Um, yeah, it's uh, um, not not been a great company. Not that what they do isn't important, and and kind of what I like about this is is you know there's there's a it can get very exciting to chase new technologies, gene therapy and CRISPR, and you know and all kinds of new ways to you to betcha. approach problems. But monoclonal antibodies that that is 140 billion dollars in sales of monoclonal antibodies in uh, 2019, and it's just going up. It's such a big market, so it really makes sense to be involved in this. So. What fascinates me about this is just their approach to it. They're actually not, they have no pipeline. They're not trying to create drugs. They are only doing the discovery and, and, um, hmm. and kind of initial engineering for partners. So one of the things I like to look for, one of the things that kind of helps me, especially if you have a, an area like this where a lot of people are involved in monoclonal antibodies and trying to come up with new drugs is what kind of validation, you know, they make a lot of claims about their science and they have a proprietary this, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What kind of claims are they making that that is some way validated? And what's really fascinating about them, in 2018, they had revenue of $8 million and they were profitable. Mm. In 2019, they had revenue of $11 million and they were pretty much break even. Still so early, so development stage, yep. Right. And in 2020, they had revenue of $223 million, Incredible. Uh, and turned a profit. So the big part of that is that um, they are responsible for uh, um, a molecule that's used in treating COVID. It's, uh, it's the wham-bam one. It's, it's bam-lan-nivumab. Um, it's one of... <laughs> Eli Lilly has two antibodies that are used to treat COVID infection, okay. and this is one of them. Okay. It was the first one. They're very, very rapid. They went from... And this is their technology. They start with screening cells to find natural antibodies and basically are able to use a lot of computational techniques to hone down in on good candidates and then engineer them and spit them out. Hmm. What I think makes them really interesting, but is also the question I would have going forward about them, is just how much value they were providing. I was floored that they had $223 million in um, revenue from basically this one program. Right. That's when when you think about this kind of company, I would say that they would be working for yeah, kind of ten percent royalties, maybe, uh, maybe less, maybe something that scaled a little bit higher at high sale levels. Not something that would produce that kind of revenue. But what they actually did is they took they did a really high risk partnership with Lilly, where they basically decided to shoulder half of the development, and so they're getting a lot of upside from it. So my question going forward with them is just how much of an outlier is that? Because that was okay. a that was a gutsy move to make. Well, thank you very much for that breakdown. And also, thank you to Frederick and Maria for the, uh, their research. And it's not surprising to me that they had a hard time finding information about the company because, as you just mentioned, Carl, it's a recent IPO. It's also on a Canadian exchange. It is a $6 billion market cap, so still a smaller cap company, but by no means a micro cap here. So we're talking about a fairly substantial enterprise, although still so early on and higher risk, no question about that. So I think more generally, I would just say that I think it's so cool, all that's happening across all of healthcare. 
I've called this sometimes the age of miracles because we're starting to figure out how to do stuff humans never knew how to do before, including healing some things we never knew how to heal or treat. And wow, think about vaccines for COVID showing up within 12 months or so of a worldwide pandemic. Those are remarkable, and we want to be invested in those things. So I have nothing really to say about Absolera. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing the name right. But Frederick, I hope you enjoyed Carl's take and feel as if we've given you some direction to look further. I do think that reading on companies' own websites these days is not a bad way to do research. When I first came out of college 30 years ago or so, you had to basically call for the annual report. You would call investor relations. You'd have to get the phone number and they would get your mailing address and they would mail you their latest 10K or annual report, which sometimes might be dated by as much as nine or 12 months. Boy, are we in a different place today to learn and piece things together using the internet. And I think that's what I would probably do with a a company like this one. Well, Carl, will will you hang with me for one more item? Absolutely. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag item number seven. This comes from Kenton Hagen, RBI team. Thank you for the persistent excellence in everything you do. I always look forward to Wednesdays so I can soak up the latest bits of wisdom from you guys as a physician with a finance degree. Oh, that's a deadly combination. Deadly in a good way. I attempt to educate my colleagues, residents, and medical students about personal finance and investing. He writes, within the rules of the SEC, of course. Well, that's really wonderful. What a what a great resource you are, I'm sure, to those around you. I also, Carl, you have to admire the combo of the physician with the finance degree. Do you know any other such people yourself? Yeah, they're mostly on Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Sounds like Kenton Hagen remains somewhere there in the hospital or the medical facility, but that's that's just great. All right. Well, let's pick it up there. Your discussion about Bitcoin that was last month, was tremendous, touched on all the components that we need to understand to make an educated decision on whether it is a suitable investment. I particularly enjoyed the insight that Bitcoin isn't necessarily a, quotes, investment, but rather a, quotes, store of wealth. This analogy, which I promptly stole with proper sourcing, has opened the eyes to so many colleagues. Well, that's just great to hear. Lastly, There are so many questions about how or when to add to or sell a position in one's investment portfolio that I hear on Rule Breaker Investing and other full podcasts. And so he's going to go on to share an insight here, Carl. I'd just love to hear your take before we move to number eight. He he writes, I particularly enjoy the XIRR function in Excel to help examine the outperformance of a stock compared to the market, the market's XIRR. So XIRR, again, we're not going to get into the profundities of Excel here on this mailbag item, but certainly a lot of analysts at The Fool like to use that as a way to gauge the compounded return of a stock or of the market. And those functions are in Excel. But really, I'm mainly reading this to get to his insight. He says, XIRR allows me to take into account the size and irregular timing cash flows to my stock or ETF positions. And then I take this outperformance or underperformance, and I divide it by the size of the position in my portfolio. So let's pause it there. I've hit my listeners with some heavy math, Carl, but I believe what he's saying is, if you think about a numerator and a denominator, if the numerator is just how well a stock is performing, it's XIRR. How good is that annualized return? And then the denominator is the size of that position in his portfolio. So a high number Carl, would be what? 
Uh, so that would mean you had a small denominator, which would mean that your position is not big. Too small. Too small. And if it's a, a big number in the numerator, we're talking about a stock that's doing really well. And that gets to the heart of what Dr. Hagen is suggesting here. He says, the higher the number, the more likely that I am, or he thinks I should add to that position the next time I add money into my investing account. This method also helps me with my sleep number. Even if a stock grows tremendously to an outweighted position in my portfolio, I can examine how much outperformance it's making compared to the market, and I might even add to the position if I know it's a winner. We fools let them keep winning, right? So we'll just conclude it right there. But I included this this week for a couple of reasons. First, this is a little bit more 101. We're getting into the math of things. Not the best for a general audience, but a lot of our listeners are more serious investors or math people. And so, Carl, I think it's kind of cool that Kenton Hagen has basically identified a ratio he uses to decide when to add to a position, right? Because he's saying if winners keep winning and generally over time, they will, and you have a small position in it, then it's the sort of thing where you could sort a spreadsheet buy your portfolio, you can have a column that shows this ratio and you could be reminded, oh, I don't have enough of that thing and it's doing really well. My question to you before you go, Carl, is do you see any weaknesses to this and or do you practice this in your own portfolio? Uh, I, you know, this is funny. We, we did a podcast earlier today and I was a little bit bemoaning my lack of discipline and some of that. I think some of these mechanical uh, kind of areas of discipline can be really, really helpful for sort of that sort of thing. And I'm not above uh, uh, you know, worrying about my own psychology with this. So I, I, what I like about that is that it really helps you focus on the whole idea of add to your winners, right? Because you're mechanically adding to your winners. You're kind of uh, um, lining that up in a way that's different than just looking at a huge um, return and thinking maybe you've missed the boat on that. And you know, I think in particular, Carl, I could imagine this being suitable for people with larger portfolios, a lot of positions. Sometimes if you have, I mean, I have about 55 stocks in my family portfolios. When you have dozens of positions, it starts becoming helpful to have a tool that lets you sort a spreadsheet with rows with lots of different positions to help you make allocation decisions sometimes. Now, I will admit, I'm not really a mechanical investor. I, I don't use quantitative metrics to drive my decision-making, I'd far rather say, hmm, which company do I really like right now? Because I like its future and it seems underpriced relative to that. But I certainly can understand how it can be a benefit for people, especially with larger numbers of positions to have ratios like this. Carl, are you a mechanical investor in any way, shape or form? I'm not, but I'm starting to conclude that the universe is trying to tell me something today. It's come up a few <laughs> times, so I think I need a little more discipline. All right. Well, Carl, and by the way, fingers crossed that you know Peter Thiel is listening and is writing you in to the wills and estates plan for the greater Thiel family, the Thiel family writ large in the sky. Come on, Uncle Pete. <laughs> and I, I have a habit of trying to save the best for last for each week's podcast, particularly the mailbags. And I think we're about to hit it here with mailbag item number eight from Lyle Grant. But first, I want to welcome back. I'm going to call him a special guest once again. Rick Minars, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, David. I've been here a lot lately, it seems. I, th I think I should bring you a punch card, like an RBI punch card where like I get a free sandwich in my fourth <laughs> podcast if I 
<laughs> squeeze another one in before the end of the month. And that's why I wanted to introduce you as my special guest, because it's rare that one person will appear on three different podcasts for this podcast inside a month. And yes, here you are, Rick. It was a delight again to have you tell your story earlier this month. And then you appeared on the Market Cap Game Show. I want to ask you about that in a second. Now, here you are back because we got a great mailbag item that I know you can speak to, and I would love love that. So you are my special guest star to close this week. But let me first mention that you played the Market Cap Game Show last week, and we had a lot of people writing in. And I particularly enjoyed this note from Jean-Paul Benoit, and that's at Jean-Paul Benoit7 on Twitter. But he wrote in, side note, I love how the analysts are clearly, he writes, incredible investors, which is a high compliment, and yet can be so, so wrong, sometimes with confidence for the market cap game show. He writes, face with tears of joy. I don't know if that's a phrase or the emoji description adds a special bit of humor and humility to the game and seems to inspire a bit more conversation around the stock. I dig the new format. Well, thank you again for that, Jean-Paul. You know, part of the reason I never actually want to play the market cap game show, I just like love being Alex Trebek, the host, Rick, is so that I, I don't ever look silly as all of us are going to when we're guessing market caps without knowing ahead of time what company we're talking about. Rick, you're one of our longest standing analysts of the fool. That was your first market cap game show. Any reflections? Yeah, and, and I want to clear up. I did, I was not going in confident at all. I did not play the Aaron card who memorized all the market caps going in. I went, <laughs> uh, you know, intentionally uh, uninformed uh, without checking everything. And I just, it's just market cap is just this one big blind spot um, that that's just always there for me. It's I always have a feel where the company's gonna. I think the market's gonna feel that the company's more valuable or less valuable in the future. I have that good feel. But if you tell me where what it steps on the scale right now, I would be terrible at the carnival guessing someone's weight. I would just be <laughs> awful. So I knew I, I'm surprised that it was and I hope I can't give can I give a spoiler here how the game turned out? It was a pretty old. Um yeah, I, I'm surprised that I actually, you know, basically split five to five with Tim, uh, who is definitely gave far tighter ranges, clearly had a better knowledge of it. Um I, I guess I just played it differently uh, and was able to, to win half of those rounds. I will mention that Jean-Paul himself said he scored six. I mentioned this earlier in the show. This game show, while it is certainly for my guest star contestants, it is for all of us, especially those playing at home. And we want you to outscore us. So Jean-Paul, well done scoring scoring a six. You you yourself, sir, were not bragging about that. I just you, you were responding to my own question how you did. But it's it's fun. We're gonna keep doing it at least four times a year because I always look forward to it at the end of every quarter. Well, at the end of every month, we do a mailbag and we get notes in from people reflecting back on the month that was for Rule Breaker Investing. And boy, did I enjoy this one from Lyle Grant. Rick, I want to share this with you now. This is actually signed Ellie's dad. Here we go. Rule Breaker mailbag item number eight. Dear David, I always enjoy your podcast, but telling their stories, volume one, was especially impactful to me. The idea of describing your life like a stock graph makes one reflect on where we come from and the forces that shaped our lives. I was driving while listening to the podcast and had to pull over when Rick started talking about his son. If he were to substitute the name Kevin for Ellie, he would have been telling my daughter's story. She too had a rare brain tumor in utero and received radiation treatment and an experimental drug therapy, which saved her life, but had lasting impacts to her brain. Ellie 
is now a happy, healthy young woman with a great sense of humor who we will be caring for the rest of our days. Cancer treatment is not only emotionally draining on a family, but also financially draining, even with insurance. For years, any extra funds we had went to pay for therapies, equipment, and co-pays. Saving and investing seemed like a distant dream. However, once my daughter's health stabilized, we could finally take a breath and start to plan for the future. And like Rick, we realized that we needed to not only save enough for our own retirement, but also pass on enough for Ellie to live out her life and not leave that financial obligation to our son. This motivated me to educate myself about investing, Lyle writes. At that time, we had a small retirement account. We entrusted to an investment company was making more money on us than we were making in the market. We knew we had to find a better path, and The Motley Fool provided a roadmap to get there. In a bit of dumb luck, I called our financial advisor in early 2008 and asked him to sell all the mutual funds in our account. Over the next year, I opened up IRAs and a brokerage account, transferred the funds out of the advisor's hands, and researched stocks. I started by buying Apple and Google in May of 2009 and quickly expanded the portfolio to 20 stocks. Little did I understand at the time that my timing could not have been better. I've made my share of mistakes over the years, but investing has gone from something I needed to do to fund our future to something I'm passionate about. Once my son was about 10, we started investing together. He built his own portfolio of mostly rule breakers selections. He is now a freshman at Gonzaga University. Go Bulldogs, writes Lyle, and his portfolio has grown large enough to help fund part of his education. We still have a way to go to fully fund our future, but these last 12 years have made that dream achievable. I appreciate and share your optimism about the future. For my part, I will continue to invest in the rule breakers who are working to make a healthier, happier world. Signed, Ellie's dad. Wow. Wow. Wow is right. Rick, one of the things I love about the internet is before the internet, we thought we were isolated. We thought we were the only ones who had our situation and certainly every context is different and everything is ultimately unique. But to to be able to be connected with somebody who, having heard your story, feels such kinship. And for me, as a third-party observer, to see that kind of connection uh, gives me chills. It makes me think about how wonderful it is that whether it's Fool.com or the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast or the internet writ large, that we can make those connections. That is very, very special. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, and when you hear that, obviously, you know, you always, it's, it's, it's just, it hits you. But I mean, I lived it too. So when you find someone who basically lived the same thing that you did, um, and it's a story that I, I know it's, it's something, I think I sprung it on you uh, earlier this week. I'm pretty sure you've never heard the story because I, it's not a story I tell. It's I not a not. story. Yeah, it's it's not a story that necessarily. I mean, it's 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 a TED talk. It's not a conversation piece. So it's it's not the kind of thing. That, it's not that I'm, obviously I'm, I'm not ashamed or hiding of it. It's just something that it's it doesn't define me necessarily. It's something you know. It's just we're just talking about stocks, talking about life. Um, 
Oh, let's talk about. I always just refer to my special needs son and leave it at that because it's just it's it's just winds up such a big story. But there's so many parallels in these stories, and j- just uh, yeah, just hearing that uh, um, from Ellie's dad from Lyle, uh, um, yeah, it's it's right there with you. I mean, it's it, it's such a challenging part in your life, and you look back and you almost feel like it's. I mean, at least in my case, I feel like it was someone else that lived through that, lived through the you know the pediat- pediatric cancer ward and all that stuff that mm. stuff that no one should ever have to live through. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing to see that, uh, you know, a story that I was just telling you connected that way. And obviously uh, the, the letter connects to me right back. Well, that was a very special letter and that was a very special podcast, Rick. And I, I want to thank you and Emily again for being the pioneers of that new series. We're definitely going to continue that series with more of our favorite fool personalities. But, you know, I think about your story, Rick, I think about Ellie's dad's story. And I think this is why we invest, isn't it? I mean, a lot of us are thinking first and foremost, and rightly so, about retirement, whatever that might mean, whatever that word means to us. But when other circumstances pop up in life, all of a sudden we realize, you know what? We're investing for something more than just that. And it takes on greater meaning. And my golly, am I ever grateful for the what I'll call the miracle of the stock market, that we could all work together to create great businesses. We could co-invest with each other. We could prosper over time and end up solving problems we encounter in life through the stock market. This is why we invest. Yeah, absolutely. In, in my case, my happened a few years before Lyle's uh, situation. And, and I was just looking back at the timeline. And this was basically, he was born in 1998. 1999 is when it was diagnosed. And it was two years of treatment. So, this is the dot-com bubble between 1999 and 2001. And I always have this kind of like foggy recollection of the dot-com bubble, even though we lived it. Obviously, The Motley Fool uh, was, you know, had front row seats to this to the show. Uh, but I think it was just because it was just so much life drama and stuff happening all around me that it was just uh, almost, a, a, you know, a blur. Uh, but yeah, it's just amazing how things happen. But it's also important um, why we have to invest because life throws you these curves um, for Kevin's dad and for Ellie's dad. Uh, these things happen. And sometimes what you think is your path in the future gets a little more complicated and it gets a lot easier if you invest correctly. Wow. Well said, you know, to close with a sports note, uh, I think it was Vince Lombardi who said, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you got back up. And that is so true of life. And indeed, I think one of America's five core values It's resilience. I think that we're incredibly resilient as a nation, and I hope, and I know so many of my fellow fools are are examples of resilience in their own lives. Well, thank you very much, Rick Munares. Thank you very much, Lyle Grant. And sure, a March Madness note to close. Boy, I'm an even bigger Gonzaga Bulldogs fan after that note. I will say we are recording Tuesday afternoon, so I don't know whether Gonzaga won tonight in advance to the Final Four in the men's college basketball NCAA tournament, but I sure hope they did. And I'm cheering them on to victory along with the entire Grant family as well. Well, thank you again to my guests, Maria Gallagher, Carl Teal, and Rick Minares. Thank you as always to my producer, Rick Engdahl, and to my friend, Heather Horton for associate producing this week's show. I am looking forward to April. To all of you, we say full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 